Welcome to another episode of the Being Human and Doing Psychotherapy podcast, uh, where I'm trying to find out who are the people behind the role of the psychotherapist and what are the psychotherapeutic parts in all of us. And today, uh, I don't know if it's a pleasure, an honor, or <laughs> what other word I would use, <laughs> uh, is uh, to host uh, Linda Thai. And um, I normally start this with, uh, yeah, my personal impression and um, my experience of Linda is the three lady or in Serbian, it would be Drevožena. <laughs> so someone who is deeply rooted, reaching for the sky <laughs> um, and someone who I felt was a gentle warrior, which is something I would like to embody. Um, and all of this might be projections, but I am fine with that. <laughs> uh, and also something about a person who is able to be contactful. Because as I was speaking to you and, and seeing you... Um, you were speaking to a thousand people and it felt to me that you were speaking to each and every one of us. Um, and that was something quite incredible to experience, uh, having that inner space to hold that many experiences and that many bodies and nervous systems. So that who I perceived Linda was, is, <laughs> and I'm curious to to get to know more of her in her own words rather than mine. So welcome, welcome, Linda. Thank you, Alex, for the warm introduction. Mm. For those of you who may not um, have a context for what Alex was referring to, um, Alex and I met at the Oxford International Trauma Conference. I think it was late August, early September of 2023. And I was deep in the dragon's lair of colonialism in the Sheldonian theatre. And my presentation was very much about unpacking historical, structural, systemic um, aspects of oppression that we often fail to recognise because as psychotherapists, we are like in the weeds. We're with individuals who have, um, you know, the most incredible histories. And yet there is the need to be able to take into account the fact that we've all walked into a movie theatre and the movie's halfway through or a quarter of the way through or it's already rolling and we, we need to actually pause and go, what is the landscape that we've all been brought into, birthed into, inherited and to be able to name those forces because they impact us all and yet are so invisible unless we name them. Mm. And can we name them in such a way that doesn't impart the sense of shame or blame? Because the quickest way to shut down a, a nervous system is to bring in that felt sense of shame or blame and that then shuts down the conversation. Mm. Yeah, and I'm hearing alarms <laughs> around <laughs> me, which is uh, 
which is probably telling <laughs> uh, for the moment of what happens when we are in the epicenter of shame and blame, yes. uh, which is all our arms go up. Um, one thing that uh, I admired in, in that presentation is that you started speaking in your native language, Vietnamese. Um, and I cried at the end of your presentation because I kind of always dreamt to be able to sing traditional Serbian music in places like that. And yet it feels so uninvited. And first of all, I would like to know, uh, is Linda your real name? Uh, and is, or is this a westernized name? Uh, because I, I, didn't, I didn't get uh, to know that part. Yes, my Vietnamese name is Thai Kim Ngo, and Hi, in my Thai Kim Ngo, and in the custom of my people, we say your last name first. We say your family name first, mm. because who you belong to and who belongs to you is foundational and primacy. Like it's it's mm. you know who you are is. A, a, a tree that is a part of a forest mm. yeah and so we say you know my if I said in Vietnamese my name is it's Thai Kim Ngo so last name first family name first and then my middle name and then the middle name tends to indicate the gender of mm. the child and yet there are also middle names that are, are gender neutral or gender encompassing and then the the first uh, the first name my individual name goes last, yeah. Mm. And here's the plot twist: is that because infant mortality is high, and also because my people are from historically from China and living in Vietnam, I have another name, mm. yeah. And so that other name, there's, there's, you know, and, and this is common in Vietnamese families. Like one, one is that it's your Chinese ancestry, but the other one is that it's your nickname so that the evil spirits don't take away the spirit of the newborn child. Mm. Yeah, because infant mortality is so high. So as, as a child, I was called Ye by my family members. And so no one calls me Ngal. You know, it's a government official or it's a something official mm. when I get called null. Mm. And so when my family as refugees made it to Australia, we, we lived in a refugee camp in Indonesia and then we made it to Australia and I'm two years and two months old, my little sister's six months old, mm. really well-meaning Anglo-Saxon people individuals said to my parents you need and this is in rural Australia in 1979 said to my parents you need to give your daughters Anglo-Saxon names because it'll make their lives easier because it'll be easier for us to pronounce their names yeah right so we're centering the convenience of the of you know the country the people of the country in which we're now living and that made absolute sense to my parents and so it was one of those things where as a very young child, I was called Linda and I had no idea that I had these names that have great beauty, 
Mm. Right, gear means gold and gulp means jade. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All I knew was that when Anglo-Saxons would ask me what my real name was, I'd say it and then they'd butcher it. And then I'd feel a sense of shame around how they weren't saying it right. And then they would impart a sense of shame around how my Vietnamese name is unintelligible and unpronounceable. Mm -hmm. And so I then learned to internalize shame about my identity because your name is your identity. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So thank you for asking and thank you for holding so much gracious space around this I see some nodding I get the sense that there's aspects of my story that resonate for you yeah I um I I only got to know that I I only made it conscious recently um um because I so my name is Alexandra uh but my mom called me Sashka. So it has it doesn't have a lot of different it doesn't have a lot of difficult to pronounce characters. And I went into um uh, Switzerland first, but then also like in all these environments where English is the main speaking language. And interestingly, I'm not sure that it was people in the environment that asked me because I went as an adult I was I was 24 but I assumed I think that's that I think was very surprising to me how much I assumed that um, it wouldn't be okay to say call me Sashka because that feels homely and um, it's just important to me Um, and only in my psychotherapy group um I realized that I have anger around that um and it was it was really an in, implicit internalized expectation when I said well this is how I wanted to call me in my therapy group um there was no objections uh and they really tried and I that that's that's the that's the thing where with internalization of you become the oppressor you become the person that starts self-monitoring um mm-hmm. for convenience i like that you word use the word convenience yes um, i become the oppressor and the oppressed mm-hmm. because we know that with the dynamics of oppression that it's less metabolically taxing to make life convenient for the oppressor. Yeah. Yeah, so that the oppressed can have some semblance of dignity. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way, it's like I give people the name Linda and then they can leave this rest of me alone, yeah. right, because I'm already showing to you that I am I am appeasing you, I'm making your life more convenient, I'm helping you to be able to like me. Yeah, and at the same time, it is, it is so metabolically taxing, right? We do um, at some point need to go through the grief process of grieving the parts of me that I gave away in order to belong, in order to feel safe, in order to avoid mm. being othered, 
to avoid feelings of shame. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I can offer some spaciousness to those parts of me now. Mm. Yeah. And these days, I almost see it as a magical secret name. Uh, when I used to work as a stage manager, my peers would call me Lindy. So whenever anyone calls me Lindy, it's evocative of that period of my life and that crew of people where we would tour and do gigs and, you know, we lived this life and this lifestyle together. And then there are people who call me Linda and then there are the people who call me Gay, right, which is my fa family, family. And so it becomes not just a nickname, but it becomes a, a protected identity almost. Mm. Yeah, protected mm. and honoured and upheld. Like there are special people in your life yeah. who call you Sashka. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it, it does feel like that. Yeah. 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 Mm. And I think I'm I'm always very curious about, so... I'm originally from Serbia and um, I think Serbia is a, is a very paradoxical place because we are both the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, and, and to, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's always been, it's always been like a very, I don't know, like a search, a, 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 a constant yearning to do kind of understand both sides. Uh, I think, and I I wonder how do you mentalize this? Um, because I I loved um part of Resma's book, where he talks about how much you need to desensitize in order to do harm to another human being. And I've, I'm recently reading about um something which is called moral trauma. And I, I always sit with that. We know how taxing being on the other side is as well. If you're not, if you're not there willingly, and I, I really imagine not many people are there willingly. Um, and yet somehow we fail to find other combinations. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm curious what was your process on, on, of understanding those dynamics and, and kind of integrating them um, and being able to then talk about them, metabolize them in some way for yourself? You know, my own lived journey of this actually had many routes in. And one of those routes was learning about the drama triangle, mm. like the victim, saviour, um, um, perpetrator, drama triangle and when I learned about that my first thought was what there are people who don't communicate in that way and don't operate in that way it was astounding to me mm -hmm. and I learned about that through uh, the 12-step fellowships of Codependence Anonymous and adult children of alcoholics and other people raised in dysfunctional families and Within that, as I started learning more about justice and equity, I began to see how it was structural, right, that it's not dysfunctional families, it's under-resourced families, and how there are layers of power over 
that are embedded within the systems of our culture. Mm. And then also learning that Mm. Mm. Sorry, I just had to pause. I just had to pause and think about whether I was going to share this next story or not, but I will. Um, so running, so that was its own journey over on this side. And then over on this side of my life, you know, I was also attending Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. I was also having my own experiences as a young person in the world. And also seeing the empowerment that happens when there's consensual dominance and submission. Yeah. Mm. Um, and at the time, at one, oh, sorry, at one point in time, I, I, I had a sub, previously called a slave, but we don't use that language these days, but I had a sub who was 20 years older than me. And Peter at one point put his head on the inside of my thigh and looked up at me and said, Oh, he, he looked up at me, right? And, he, and I looked at the look on his face and I said to him, you look so insipidly pathetic right now. I would give you whatever you wanted. And I said it in a cruel kind of way with a sneer, with disdain. Yeah. 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 And he he looked at me and he said, oh, I was trained a long time ago and I know that every good sub actually controls the dom mm. or in his words, every good slave controls their master. Yeah, the language that we we move away from these days, yeah, um, because, because for people who aren't aware, it does very much land on the um, African-American experience of enslavement, yeah, and we want to separate the reality and the brutality of that from um, a consensual arrangement between adults where we take on roles, yeah. So he said, as a good sub, um, I was trained to, to, to know that a good sub actually controls the dom. Mm. And in that moment, I like there were these light bulbs that went off mm. that it was only years later once I learned about the dynamics of fawning and appeasement, not just within traumatic relationships, but between layers of society, between groups of oppressor and oppressed, that that began to make some real sense to me. And the part that is that was challenging for me to reconcile back then with Peter was that I was fully aware that there was actually a brain orgasm. Like I was actually getting off on humiliating him and on being cruel to him. And at that moment in time, it made me aware that there was very little difference between me and extreme bullies. Yeah. And so I can't remember the, the circumstances around it, but Peter and I then parted ways or I just didn't see him again. I can't remember what, what that was, what was around that, but that relationship and that, that moment in time together just stayed with me all those years. Mm. Yeah. And so in so many ways, those elements of being the oppressor have played its way in my own life. 
Um, I remember one of my friends offering me feedback and saying to me, you know, Linda, no one likes to feel like they're being attacked. And she said it in a small voice from the other side of the room, just very gently put it out there. And I had no idea at the time that I talked at people rather than to people. I had no idea that I had such a strong self-protective fight response that was always in charge to keep me protected. And my own trauma therapy has actually allowed me to, to soften towards myself. Mm. Yeah. As well as to hold out someone's competence because no one likes to feel fragilized. Yeah. Yeah. Because fragilizing someone is also another form of othering someone. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't know if that made any sense, but that it was like sense. a 20-year journey of my life of yeah. just like these moments that somehow wove their way into each yeah. other. And I actually really rarely um, share some of these stories from my own life. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to say that I felt privileged to to hear something so vulnerable. And I I had a very similar experience recently in my training and it was very evocative of what you were saying now we've done an experiment uh, like a gestalt experiment where uh, our tutor invited us so that our finger is some the most uh, we were exploring power dynamics and our finger is the most um, attractive thing to to our partner in in the experiment and we can do whatever we want to them. And I mean, as I'm doing this, like I'm I'm already feeling the discomfort to to know that that's what's happening. And I remember as I was, you know, exploring what is it that I feel as I control this person with my finger, basically. Wow. I've noticed what I've first thing I've noticed is that interestingly people think that this is what we are looking for but when you get it it's so empty yeah. it's such an empty experience mm -hmm. it's not contactful it is uh it's I don't know for me it was just so what do I do with this? It's not fun. It, the word is it's not fun. <laughs> um, and I, I imagine people think it's, it's, it's utterly fun to have, I don't know, 30 people being like led by this, but it's really boring actually. And then the second thing was what I tried to do is that I lifted the person up so that at least I can have them in, in my eyesight because I felt like I can't I can't have this differential but then in the post processing of the exercise uh, I could have done so many different things I could have gone down on their level I could have you know I could have done but I've chosen to lift them up and paralleling to psychotherapy is how many times this is we are going to lift you up because you know 
I have something you need. <laughs> and 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 about shame as well, as as in like it was very hard to me to get with them on their level. And I'm using very interestingly words such as level up down. Um but it's 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 a very weird thing that if you don't dissolve it really is taxing <laughs> it doesn't sit well um and is yeah. it okay if i ask what was it like when the roles were reversed uh that's a very good question i need to remember i i processed only the other one um easier easier much easier much easier yeah I was like I wasn't even questioning why I'm there <laughs> like that um yeah it's interesting I haven't I haven't until you asked mm -hmm. yeah in other ways it's easy to be an object yeah right it's easy to be objectified yeah than what it is to take up space yeah as an equal with safety with dignity yeah i want to pause on that actually <laughs> and maybe let's repeat that sentence and unpack it a little bit more it's easier to be an object than to take space yeah, and it's it's easy to be an object, mm. be objectified, yeah. rather than take up space with yeah. dignity as equal. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think that's so? <laughs> um, because it's structural. Mm. Because it's structural, and it's 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 less metabolically taxing, right? So if we look at the dynamics, say, of the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. yeah right with which um for, for which for men yeah when we start to talk about unhealthy expressions of masculinity right it's about status and power and money mm -hmm. and women are objects and women are objectified mm -hmm. yeah and so within that paradigm as in a female body it's it's yeah, and I see so many young girls and women. Um, I know I've had a period of my life where I was like, let's just make myself the most beautiful, sexy object possible. And then I'm going to judge other women by how well they do or do not objectify themselves or let themselves be objectified. Because within those power dynamics, the only way to get further ahead is to be the to be a good handbag to the right person yeah yeah and there's so much sadness that then arises as well as anger yeah yeah that for some of us we've actually trained um the next generation or trained our peers or um, participated in um, a culture of objectification of ourselves in order to try to get ahead within a system that doesn't offer us the dignity of our own humanity so oh, that we don't even see that it's possible. Exactly. 
I, as you said that, I just remember the sentence again coming from my training where it was a friend of mine in the training who named it. And she said, what I'm hearing you say is, am I even a human to you? And the sad part for me is that I'm sure in a polarity of me, there is someone who would say the same to me. And mm -hmm. that is the most difficult one to look at that I, when I talk about privilege, I always see myself in this horrible middle way where you are like, there is a group below and there is someone up and it's it's a constant appeasement versus power where you can play it out. But I I wonder, um, I will just say it as it is in my head, but maybe you can make it a better question, but is there a way out? Uh, or is this something that is to have and to hold in awareness? and operate from that awareness that these are at play in a human existence. I think you named it, holding this in awareness and then being able to be a space of relational safety mm. where things can be named without shame or blame. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that for me in my life's journey meant reckoning and reconciling with my own trauma history. And because after that incident with Peter, I actually started to go, what is it about me that gets off on being in control over another human being? And it's not a sub, like a submissive. It was like subjugation. Yeah. yeah. And, and at some point I did some shadow work where I was then able to go, oh, maybe I at some point was controlled or powerless and this is part of this thing that was playing out that I had no idea, I, you know, I was like in my 20s, yeah. Um, and to be able to stay curious um, I think is is a part of it. And also I recognise that having access to uh, therapy to trauma reprocessing modalities specifically that work at the nervous system level to remove the negative imprint of trauma but also that that replace it with a positive new experience of mm -hmm. safety yeah it, it, it's a privilege to access right there are so many layers of inaccessibility to all of this and yet I can only hope in our conversation today that maybe perhaps there were some moments that sparked for for the folks listening where your curiosity becomes ignited. Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, interesting that um, a person I interviewed, she, uh, he mentioned the drama triangle and how, you know, the hero has been the victim that then... <laughs> <laughs> armored and um and I had the same part in me I've done psychodrama and I was the psychopathic part of someone's personality and I I was just so surprised by the joy of standing and being like you are just this little worm and I was sitting in that saying it with such 
comfort like I didn't feel anything and and I it it I mean I I was able to hold it enough but it did terrify me so to... pause there let's pause there yeah. right it actually feels good to not feel yeah, yeah. exactly right. it actually feels good to not feel it actually feels good to objectify someone yeah. else or to you know call them a sniveling worm yeah with no affect whatsoever it actually feels empowering yeah for some of us to be able to take on that role yeah and that there can be the space of opening for understanding how these self-protective mechanisms form in other people that that from the outside looking in can be perceived as incredibly abhorrent until we're asked to take on that role just for a moment in time and bring the fullness of our, our own humanity to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I, I, I want to repeat, it, it does feel good to not feel. And different people will go to that place of not feeling in different ways. And, and therefore many of, that's why we talk about trauma these are all symptoms of traumatic experiences in some way. Yes. And I there is something I want to ask here as you as expert and not you as human, but um, um, we trauma is a big story in the moment. And I it's it's normal in human experience that you know when we get a new toy, it becomes the whole of our world uh, and it's not it's not everything so i wonder in your work where do you feel the limitation of the trauma story mm -hmm. mm. if you i mean it's no, no, no. i think it's a wonderful question you know i think everything is derived from the vantage point that you're coming from. You know, I work with clients who are very much identified with their trauma story, and yet it may have actually been a lifetime's work to actually name the trauma and then mm -hmm. identify it as a way of reclaiming and moving through the grief of what was taken that shouldn't have been taken and what was given that shouldn't have been given and also what was not given that was your birthright. Yeah. And then I've also worked with clients where their trauma story has been the entirety of their lives and there is no wiggle room either way. Mm. And so it can feel like I'm colluding with their trauma story. And yet what's happening in there, if I can pause and think about it clinically, is that there's been the lack of genuine, authentic listening and presence yeah. and validation. And there may also be in there um, like a truncated attachment cry. So they're telling their story, but they can't actually tell that I'm here. Yeah. So I can be contactful, but they're not able to be contacted Oops. or they're only open to being contacted in a certain way. Yeah. And that then, you know, I can be curious about that so that my contact then begin can begin to land. And yet my training with Pat Ogden of sensory motor psychotherapy 
um, she says that you know, you've got to deal with the trauma first. And as therapists, we tend to be incredibly attachment focused. I attachment just wanted focused. to ask that question. <laughs> but but, but the, the intensity of someone's attached uh, trauma history means that they're unable to take in the attachment, the contact that's yeah. been offered. Yeah. 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 And so to be able to keep step with someone so that if it is appropriate for that person, we then can step into doing the trauma reprocessing work. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is that beautiful zone of transference and counter-transference and someone's offering me like my own ass on a platter <laughs> reconciling oh, with yeah. the aspects of my history that are coming up. And at the same time, this is where they're not separate, but they're, you know, there's there's uh, there's the expressive arts, right, to be able to externalise the internal world so that we can then begin to develop a new relationship to it, right, to ourselves. And then there's also the psychoeducation because we know that intellectualization can be the primary defence for many traumatised people. And we can also, like, leverage off of this yeah. because they're brilliant brain, your brilliant brain. I can meet you here and create safety through meeting you here. And I just need to let go of like my desire for you to have big feelings. I mean, this is my transference and countertransference here is all of my feelings are so repressed and suppressed that I wanted my clients to feel the feelings that were too overwhelming for me to feel. And then I would feel that I was being successful because they were now feeling the big feelings that I don't have access to inside of me. Yeah. Right? Like we, yeah. And that's where having really great case consultation and supervision can be so incredibly helpful. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing about co-creation and, yes. and how as therapists, there is, we're, we're in this cycle of, um we you know there was that there was the idea of it's in you but there was the therapist was absolved of <laughs> of of that happening but like now we have more language of 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 explaining how we are impacting each other in a kind of constant constant cycle and actually that's that's uh, exactly the question I, I was coming to you very specifically this evening because i've i've had an experience again in my training where i was like where the trauma and the attachment uh, uh, like models were clashing for me in, in a session. And I sat there, I was like, both are here and I don't know which one to work with first. Um, and I was curious about, and it also reminded me of your talk about um, how much we are focused on attachment and how that structurally is a position of privilege uh, that we neglect the re-traumatization that happens when our clients go back to their communities uh, so I really like that you bring what happened to your people and what's still happening to your people and so I wonder how do you work with that when on one-on-one, -on -one, you know, the person sitting across you might go back into a highly traumatizing space. Yes. Yes. 
Let's see here. So just a recap for folks listening. Um, what Alex is referring to is um, where I offer various approaches to defining trauma or to looking at trauma. Traditional psychology says, what's wrong with you? Trauma-informed psychology says, what happened to you? Culturally-informed psychology asks, what happened to your people? And liberation psychology says, and what continues to happen to you and to your people? Mm. Yeah. And this is where the framework, can be applied with nuance to the landscape within which you are living and operating and the and the individual client that you're with mm. in that moment yeah mm. so that that then allows you to be able to pass apart the the dynamic layers of complexity mm. that can feel so overwhelming and challenging and yet we need to be able to name this because otherwise what's hap what happens in the dyadic space between yourself and the client may not have traction for them in their lives. Mm. Yeah. And as someone who is very much trained in trauma reprocessing modalities, I actually do believe that when you, when one per, you know you know how we say addiction spreads in families and trauma spreads yeah. in families, I also believe that healing does. Yeah. 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 And that when you when one person experiences, um, you know, deep healing that actually happens over time, this yeah. then begin to move outwards into that person's communities, mm. which may also mean that they shift the communities within which they're choosing to participate in in order to better best support their healing journey yeah yeah, yeah. and I want to go I, I think it's not going to be too much of a switch but I would love to not miss unpacking my my favorite thing about you which is um standing in your truth uh, authentically and yet naming things that are difficult um, and I was in that conference um, that we mentioned I was in your voice workshop and the biggest impression for me was saying no in several different volumes mm -hmm. and having an embodied experience that no is enough that there doesn't have to be screaming. There doesn't have to be increased levels of um, intensity for me to deliver my message. So my curiosity lies in, I, again, hearing your history. And we didn't even really name your history, but maybe we can say something about that. But hearing your history I just imagine how hard that must have been and I wish to know Linda that's 15 20 years old <laughs> but I wonder how did you sit in your own throne uh, in the best possible way 
in your it, pelvis, which is <laughs> it's a journey. It's a journey. It, it's an absolute journey. And when it comes to reclaiming the voice, you know, because when we look at the dynamics of, of oppression, we're actually looking at voicelessness and choicelessness, mm-hmm. loss of agency and loss of dignity. And so as one begins to reclaim one's voice, there's a lot of screaming perhaps. There's a lot of rage. There's a lot of, I have a voice and I'm going to tell you I have a voice. I'm going to use it now. (laughs) Look at me and my voice, my new found. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And to, to, you know, and I think the thing with trauma is that trauma is adaptation. And to be able to welcome with grace the truthfulness of all of these adaptations as pearls on a string of pearls. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And when we're voiceless and then we become enraged, that's natural. Yeah. But at some point I recognize that we're not actually voiceless. We've been talking this whole time. People aren't listening. Yeah. Oh, that. Oh. Yeah. 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 And it can be incredibly metabolically taxing to learn how to speak in such a way that other people will listen especially when it comes to conversations about race, about the patriarchy, about ableism, about neurodivergence, about queer and trans rights. Mm. And yet my own capacity to speak gracefully and truthfully allows, and, and with a with a pacing, allows other people to then begin to take in the information. Yeah. You know, something that I learned when I worked in marketing is that right message, wrong delivery is wrong message. Right. So right message, wrong pacing is wrong message. Um, Yeah. Mm. And right message, wrong timing is also wrong message. Mm. And so we can only move as fast as the speed of trust, and that speed is actually the, the 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 you know we can only move as fast as the speed of trust, and what that requires is for my nervous system to be open to feeling into the the pulse or the heartbeat of the space. Yeah, because the charge of trauma says overrun people, mm. smack them in the face with the truth, rip the bandaid off. <laughs> Yeah. And it's it's a case of where for me knowing about the nervous system and how trauma impacts the nervous system to be able to recognize that you know there's a phrase here in North America we call it white fragility 
right? It's the inability of white-bodied nervous systems to be able to have capacity for conversations around race because it actually evokes a lot of shame. Mm. Yeah. And, and then blame and then intellectualization and then whataboutism and then everyone in the space is defaulting to their subjugated identities and their subjugated victim selves. And then we're playing the oppression Olympics and then we haven't gotten very far. Yeah. And so to be able for me to authentically do the work where I can embody that presence has taken a lot of work and to recognise that people in positions of power, groups in positions of power, have never had to reckon with feelings of shame and grief. Mm. And how can I invite people to step towards a conversation that's paced in a way that allows for a sense of safety and trust yeah yeah you know after that presentation at Oxford I had quite a few white-bodied folks come up to me with gratitude saying you made me feel so uncomfortable and you made it safe for me to feel so uncomfortable mm. yeah and I think that's at the heart of all of these hard conversations in our lives is can we tether ourselves into a more expansive experience of of trust and, and re relative trust and relative safety, safety. Yeah. that allows us to be uncomfortable together yeah yeah yeah, it's, it's interesting what's coming for me is so much gratefulness for my training, because one of the things that we've learned is that feedback is relational. Yes. So me wanting to deliver a message that you're not ready to uh, hear or not willing or whatever, not at the moment, uh, is um, it's also a form of aggression. Yes. On my part. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so I... And also, there's something interesting as you're saying this, um, it's easy to other, but um, for me, uh, I find it again being, if you can call it white presenting, I'm really finding it hard uh, to, to navigate um, a new language, basically. But um, but I I always, like, there was other whites that were kind of oppressing so we were bombarded but again we were and so like when you have them both inside it was hard like the hardest awakening for me was to see how I was the worst patriarch I was the you know um well the worst but one off um and and it was it was healing as well uh, because those internalized figures then they can get the compassion they need inside me first so that outside things can change but um i guess what i find um i i always feel like there must like it must be that every person regardless of their skin color has 
a little bit of that separation inside of themselves in 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 gestalt i think they call it top dog underdog split um so i i wonder i guess i wonder um about the complexity and the nuance of that of the difficulty of recognizing uh and and constantly staying in a top dog position let's say um because in my experience, if you're a human, you must be in both positions. Um, I don't know. I don't know why I've said this. I don't know if it makes any sense. Maybe you can help me out. But <laughs> but there there is something about, um, yeah, there is something curious about, like, oh, I can't understand their experience <laughs> somehow. And even mm. if I see the people in power, because I work in a lot of high power organizations, uh, elitist, if if you want, um, I don't, I don't like. There is always the guy above you, <laughs> and so I I feel like I I find it weird, uh, the difficulty to connect to those parts. Uh, let Let's put it like that. Yeah. You know, the uh, I call it one up, one down. Okay, yeah. Yeah, which is similar to the t um, top dog, underdog. Um, you know, I've heard people say that it's the human condition, yeah, mm -hmm. that we're pack animals and pack animals have right cool. hierarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've, I've heard, yeah. Oh, yeah. I hate when people use biology to excuse bad behavior. So, I mean, I will just be the blunt here. But when people tell evolution and I'm like, oh, guys, I mean, even evolution is just meaning making like the part of me where I'm not choosing my word comes up. But I'm like, please don't use biology to excuse violence, like nothing in biology excuse. <laughs> you know, sorry, uh, I interrupted. No, th thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, biology is wonderful. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes. I, I hear you absolutely. Right? Do we have to default to our innate primal instinct, yeah. or can we actually have conversations about the world that we hope to see? Yes. And part of creating the world that we hope to see is reconciling that, for whatever reason, we have parts of self yes. that can. Um, that 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 do embody aspects of top dog underdog or one up one down of the hero rescuer and of the 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 um, perpetrator abuser as well as of the victim yeah mm. and at the core of this you know as a as a psychotherapist is the unresolved wounds of the inner child and to be able to make contactful contact yeah, with the unresolved wounds of the inner child so that we can then develop a, an appreciation for the, the adaptive strategies that we came up with to be able to not address feelings that were overwhelming and experiences that were overwhelming. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so this is where I actually see the realm of storytelling, 
of the expressive arts, of poetry, of movies, of fiction. Did you know, and I learned this in reading Johan Hari's book, uh, Stolen Focus, about, oh, it's a wonderful book. Anyway, through, somewhere in the book he says that people who read fiction have more empathy than people who read only nonfiction. Mm. And there was actually a research study based. He didn't just come up with it. Like he quoted research studies. And I had a moment of reckoning because I only read nonfiction. So I actually started reading fiction. And he's like, that study is so right. Because I actually had to suspend everything I think I know about the world and enter into life through the point of view of a character that I'm starting midway through their life. (laughs) And the suspensefulness of the unfolding of someone's life experiences moving forward, as well as the information from the past that you're getting about them, and to notice the ways in which my own uh, systems of imagination and empathy actually then become ignited mm. and alive, alivened, was astounding. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I as I'm thinking, like the first thing that comes to my mind is Isaac Asimov's books. I don't know why, and I mean, I, I've I've re- I've read a lot of, uh, kind of, well, it's still nonfiction. Uh, sorry, it's still fiction, but it's kind of, I don't slightly dystopic, type, but uh, there is something. Uh, there's something interesting in how we project even in those I love in those stories because the humanness still shows <laughs> but it uh, it allows you to stretch to stretch it into different places so it's safer to explore it yes yeah <laughs> yes and we know yeah. with childhood trauma and neuroscience and the left-right hemispheres, the brain and the corpus callosum, which is the mid-structure, doesn't grow so optimally. But in a nutshell, you you feel or you deal with life. And so many of us feel life, but we struggle to deal with life, like the nuts and bolts of adulting. And some of us deal with life really well, but we, we struggle with the feeling of life, mm. of feeling life. And then somewhere in amongst all of that, back to a question you asked earlier, the limitations of trauma is that we actually fail to see neurodivergence. And so for some of us, we struggle to deal with life because we're lacking in frontal cortex capacity, not because of trauma, but because of ADHD. Right, And so to be able to, 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 to know all of that scientifically through the nonfiction that we read <laughs> and then to 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 see ourselves in characters you know in plays in movies through books can be very um not just humbling but also a connection to the universality Mm. of what it means to be human yeah yeah and interestingly you've uh i don't know why this came but you were talking about eating a humble cake and (laughs) i love that um it's important from time to time uh, and if you don't want to eat it life anyways gives it to you <laughs> um 
What one of my favorite sayings is if you don't eat humble pie, then you're gonna eat a shit sandwich. So you might as well learn how to eat humble pie. Yeah. 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 Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. I love it. I just love it. Um, that it's 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 like we have a lot that's something's this the loss of language and something's I, I love I don't know I love how you found ways to express this lovely things in English because we have a lot of these small things in Serbian but then it's kind of um it's the first time where I I don't know I don't know if it's I mean the upbringing you have and a part of that communist way of collective humor uh with dealing with trauma but there is something that feels very familiar in in the way you walk through the world for me <laughs> um but yeah i wanted to ask um about your your journey well can we pause on that yeah, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> i don't know i just want to pause because my brain just went pow 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 because yeah. i often talk about you're wanting to reconnect to look I often talk about how I am redefining what it means to be Vietnamese and I'm redefining what it means to be Australian and I'm redefining what it means to be Alaskan because I'm living in Alaska I'm redefining what it means to be a United States you know person and part of that for me has been traveling around the world and visiting Vietnamese diaspora communities, right? How have the mm -hmm. Vietnamese who've relocated to London or Vienna or, you know, Bern in Switzerland or you know, different parts, how are they all doing? And yet there are people who fled communism who are all over the world. And it would be fascinating to bring us all together to talk, to, 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 to actually understand the traumatic legacy, as well as the resilience. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, of having survived such an oppressive regime. Yeah. 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 And and honestly, it's, I mean, it's such a tricky subject, but being in a soft communistic regime, whatever that means, um, I think Serbia was probably the one of the more, like, ex-Yugoslavia was probably one of the really privileged ones although yeah complicated but there is something about I, I feel like I'm I'm um it's a it was an experiment whose results we should not just dismiss um because there's a lot to be learned uh from from that how we behave in such systems also how how we thrive i mean a lot most of serbia was built in communal effort um or at least on roads and uh and people loved to do it together so people love to do things together so there is a secret spice in getting people to do things together um and it's not always money <laughs> and and i think it's 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 important if we are to find a more balanced nuanced life um so as well as capitalism is another experiment but but i think it as like instead of denigrating it as 
the horrible thing that happened there there are some good parts that i think we can pick from that and interestingly i mean it's it's a weird thing i was a child but uh, during the bombing in serbia there was a tv show and and lots of humor um in making fun of the leaders and i remember this vividly with a lot of comfort and it was hard the other part was hard but but us staying together um was so important and and also like how we separate healing from in a commune in a therapy room and how little we give back to community and how little we create communities to do so so I, I, yeah, I would love to have us together <laughs> because I think, and especially like, I'm very curious how it was in different, in different regimes. Uh, and in, it's, there is still one that is uh, living and breathing. So, so I'm very curious how, yeah, what is it that, that we can bring from that? And, and, and it's a polarity and world operates in polarities. And I, I think we often forget that polarity part that we feel like we need to belong to one or the other, but how can we hold both and use them when they're appropriate rather than oppressively? Mm -hmm. I love the nuance that you're bringing to this because, mm -hmm. you know, I often have conversations with friends about capitalism, you know, because capitalism in different countries actually operates differently. Right. So we can't lump, we can't just say blanket statements about capitalism and same with communism. We can't just make blanket statements about it because there's the nuances in the ways in which it unfolds and impacts people depending on who you are, yeah. you know, the status that you hold, the the regime that comes in or or the, the government that comes in. Yeah. Because yeah, we just use the right word regime for for the folks that we decide are are terrible <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah but there is there is something to that as well as in like sorry for this but um um when i what, what i learned from capitalism as opposite so there is a real value to things in terms of resource yeah. and in communist regimes sometimes we forget that there is an underlying expectation that the state will provide something whereas in capitalism a lot of prices are inflated because it other other things are at stake but there is something about if you think about therapy trainings and how they operate in the uk versus in the u.s um, a lot of the work here is done by unpaid young trainees because we need to do 150 hours basically um, for our training. And in a way that doesn't, it looks like it's cheaper, but it's not cheaper. It's invisible labor. And so I, I've learned a I'm lot. Pause, I'm going to pause you there. Yeah because it's a similar system in the US and it's also the feminization of labor and it's yeah and we have to name that yeah which is why it's what is why it's free and cheap yes yeah. yeah yeah i i did actually speak to a friend who said 
this is the last generation which has grandmothers that are able to keep the kids and feel that that's their purpose. The next one is not going to be there and we are going to be in deep trouble because women are not going to do this for free <laughs> anymore. And then we will actually recognize there was a lot of things that we we didn't appreciate but should have. And now there is no one to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's the commodification of caring. Yeah. 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 Just being aware of time, uh, I think there are so many, yeah, so many more topics we could we could open and unpack, but I I, I don't want to open and not be able to close them. Um, but uh, I wanna um, I want to ask: Is there anything I I'm sure there are many things I asked and and I didn't ask, but is there anything that you feel I didn't ask, but you feel like a burning desire to share, and you feel like we missed? No, actually. Uh, yeah, no. Um, Alex, you create this beautiful relational space where it's this flowing conversation where things just move like a river that flows. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I feel pride. <laughs> oh, because it, it, is, it is the intention, but it feels yeah. nice to have it felt. Yes, mm. yes. And for the audience, I think one loop that I'd like to complete was a question that you asked about me being on stage at the Sheldonian and you know, and, and also relating that to being able to embody a no and being able to embody grace and being able to embody, I am here, but I'm not going to overpower you because I have the power position of being on stage. Mm. And for me, it speaks to a larger conversation around resource that I feel is often overlooked mm. in therapy um, and for me when I got up on that stage and I started speaking in Vietnamese and introducing myself in Vietnamese there was it was like my ancestors came to be with me because I'm not going to say my name in my native language and say my grandparents' name and like collapse into a little shell. And I'm also not going to say my name and say their names and like, you know, put on the fight stance because that's not what they taught me how to be. And there are things that each of us can do that can remind ourselves of our own inherent dignity and worth mm. that allows us to then be able to have a voice that comes from the earth, through the pelvis, through the fire of the diaphragm, through the heart space, mm. yeah, and channeled through the, the throat, the face, the eyes, where I'm not holding anything back mm. and I'm speaking truthfully mm. Yeah, mm. without shame without blame mm. I um yeah you, you've used the word river but yeah that's what I felt as you said that um flow I like yeah I, I'm thinking of the Serbian word. I also like the Serbian word, which is protočno. It's like, yeah, um, but but also 
resourcing from that's what I experienced that's why I called you tree lady because it felt like uh your feet are very firmly on the ground <laughs> um and I and I I kind of kind of was borrowing a little bit from that um and one last thing maybe I want to ask here is um I remember also looking I mean the way even now you look at me but also the way you received me there I felt I felt received I felt seen um and I I imagine I don't know what other people's experiences are but I I imagine they have been similar um and I wonder what supports you in that receiving um it's a lot of energies it's a lot of different impacts mm-hmm. um and how do you support to feel and let go <laughs> it's the grounding through the earth because the earth is where my ancestors are buried mm. yeah and it's also connection to the back body to the back side of my body because I don't need to keep constantly going forward and connecting through the front side of my body. And so even when, and particularly more so when I'm hugging someone or holding them, being present with you, it tends to be front to front. And yet for me to have an awareness to my, my anchors, right, that which tethers me to something bigger and greater and more expansive that you you and your energy and your ancestors are also a part of. Mm. Because I'm not holding you alone. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, I like, oh, I think I'm going to use this with my clients. I, I, I love it. Yeah. Uh, one of my teachers, she says the back is back. Um it's probably been for me at least the longest of journeys to to feel it um but yeah it's it's a wonderful reminder of that mm-hmm. yeah. yes i am held and so are you alex yeah yeah mm. we forget and it's okay yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and one last question, which I love to ask because of the idiosyncrasies in people, which is, uh, is there an, ab- uh, an absurd thing about you that not many people know about? Oh. Something that feels un-Linda like Un-Linda yeah. I used to be the first lady of Australian all-star wrestling. So I don't know if over in Europe you have like the, you know, the you know, not the proper wrestling where it's grappling, but like, you know, the the glamour and the show ponies and the the matches that are rigged and yes. So <laughs> so I used to be the first lady of Australian all-star wrestling. What, what does that mean? That you were wrestling or you were the one who was uh I, Yeah, I was the one who was so so my man was so there was the ox, the ox rocks. Okay. And then there was Marky Mark Delicious. And they had a manager. I've forgotten the manager's name, but I should look it up. Anyway, I was, I was, I was always with the manager, and I was always cheering my 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 team on. Oh wow! Yes, 
Yes. <laughs> um, and that's something, yeah, the span of your experience, the breadth of your experience. Can't wait for the book. Can't wait for the book. <laughs> yeah, lovely. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for you. That's uh, that's it. <laughs> the feeling is mutual, Alexandra. <laughs> and I must say, it's the first time I've heard my name uh, without a twitch. <laughs> I love it. I, I get that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you again. Oh, you're so welcome.